Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions. Questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt. Questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. The last couple of episodes, we started by reading a scripture passage because we had it chosen ahead of time. But in some of our circles, we don't choose a scripture passage in advance. We choose it based on who is in the room and what those in the room are bringing to the room. So uh, that's how we were feeling today. A little a little uncertain of where to go. So we're going to follow the leading of the spirit and each other to figure out where to go. So uh, this is just a standard. I have nothing special in my checking question today. Our sort of default question that we will ask folks uh, is what is something that you have been thinking about or wrestling with lately as it relates to faith and life? Um, some of those big questions that are often in the back of our mind when we are driving, for those of us who still drive places. <laughs> Sometimes it's that thought while you're cooking dinner, um, just kind of what has been coming to the surface for you lately? So what's been kind of bubbling for me lately is navigating faith that feels kind of rigid and specific or doctrinal or my way or the highway one way versus like a more kind of open-handed, a more curious faith and how the culture that I'm in has really shaped that perspective, you know, so culture, you know, being family systems, the U S Western, you know, whiteness really impacting a very rigid specific way of understanding things versus uh, more, like I said, open-handed curious uh, space to operate as a person of faith. Well, I, <laughs> Well, I'm in the middle of like seminary and I'm in the history portion of seminary. There are so many places where I'm like, oh, that's, that changed the course of everything. And what if that thing would have happened? Or what if that council would have went the other way? Like there's so many different times that I wonder about like the shift in things, <laughs> but I don't know that that's helpful for picking a passage. Um, <laughs> so the other thing I was thinking about is because I was preparing, um, I was prepping for a study I'm leading tomorrow night. Somebody had shared a, just a stanza from um, a prayer written by Black Elk. It's its earth prayer, but she shared just a stanza of it. And I like have been thinking about it again because it's so powerful. But the stanza is, um, it may be that some little root of the sacred tree still lives. Nourish it then, that it may leaf and bloom and fill with singing birds. And it's interesting because for me, it, it like draws up this, this wondering of like, how connected am I to that sacred tree? Like, do I believe I have like a little root of it? Does my life have like blooms and branches? Does, like, I don't know. It, it just got me thinking all kinds of different ways about 
how interconnected we all are. And in some ways that probably links to history too, right? Like how much we've like damaged the tree <laughs> um, or mm -hmm. maybe taken out some of the birds or the branches. Um, and so like trying to get to the root of connection and like good stuff. I have been thinking about spirit and prayer and conscious versus subconscious prayer. Maybe it would be like, I've been thinking about some things in life that feel like, oh, I wish they were in a different spot. And then I think, well, have I really prayed about them? And then I think, well, what is prayer really? I think I have prayed about them, even if I haven't prayed about them, but should I be praying about them more? What is prayer? <laughs> What does the spirit do? Like, you know, that whole like way that it, I, I feel like I don't know how to articulate the question, but I also feel like somehow people are going to understand what I'm saying, right? Of like that sense of how conscious does prayer need to be? How does the spirit move? How conscious do I need to be of the spirit's movement for the spirit to be moving? Because sometimes I think things look or feel much more ordinary, but that actually can be a work of the spirit. I don't think it always has to be a big mystical thing. But then that sort of feels complicated sometimes in terms of like, what is my choice from day to day? How much time should I be spending in conscious prayer about something as opposed to something like conscious work on something? <laughs> um, and what if work is prayer and how all of that goes together in one messy jumble of a question. <laughs> so that's where, that's where I am. Jason, you just shook your head. Oh, yeah. Just the messy jumble of everything. I just love that, that phrase. I mean, that feels like life right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know how to say it other than that. Um, okay. There's interesting ways that this ties together, I think for, for where we could go. I think about Lisa, the tree, there's a few places that we could go with tree. Um, we could trace tree through scripture and think about the way that tree is a metaphor from Genesis to revelation, because we've got an hour. So <laughs> plenty of time to look at the whole of the metaphor of a tree in scripture. Um, but maybe jump into a couple spots. So we could either pick one of these passages or even track a couple, but obviously thinking about things like the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, uh, Jeremiah 17 and Psalm one, and the, both of them carrying this idea of a tree that continues to bloom. Jesus talking about a mustard seed that becomes a tree where birds can make their nests, um, a tree that is in revelation. Um, so tree is actually quite prevalent in scripture. My gut is maybe in an hour, we should pick one of those and let it like flow into others. And my thought is maybe the Jeremiah because the Jeremiah one would also connect a little bit into, um, transitions, I think. And another passage that comes to mind with Jason's is, um, Exodus 20, primarily because I've been there recently myself actually is why it's here because Exodus 20 is where we see the 10 commandments, which would have a certain amount of rigidity to it. But it also ends with talking about this sort of mysterious idea of having altars of dirt, not altars of stone. Um, and this place where it feels like interesting that it's in the same breath to have a framework and a lack of framework and sort of how those two things are held in tension uh, in Exodus 20. I, okay, the one, one that would combine mine and Lisa's a little bit would be something along the lines of Exodus 40 with tabernacle and the way that the spirit comes into play with the tabernacle, but also the way the tabernacle feels actually like one of those moments of what if people had made a different choice? Um, what if they hadn't built it? What if they hadn't, like, what would, how the trajectory of the story changed? Or it, it brings me to ideas of like, what if it had stayed a tabernacle and never become a temple? Um, what's 
what's true of a tabernacle. Anyone else have an idea? Those are like three slash six passages for the three of us to talk about the next hour. They all sound great to me. So you guys pick. I, it sounds wonderful. I'm just going to be honest. I got a new Bible and I was really hoping for a New Testament passage. <laughs> did you get the indigenous uh, translation? Yes, yes, I did. It's like that's only New Testament. So that would. Yeah. But if, I, <laughs> but if I'm going to stay Old Testament, because I'll really. Um, most of the options are Old Testament. Well, the um, tree goes into the new if we talk about the parable of the mustard seed. I know, but I feel like that's ridiculous to just want to do a study because I have a new Bible. <laughs> um, it'll get plenty of use. I I kind of, well, I liked how you framed up about like altar of dirt. I think that'd be my vote. All right. That puts us in Exodus 20. I think, I mean, we usually try to just pick a few uh, verses to read out loud for the sake of the podcast. So maybe I will summarize that in Exodus 20 verses 1 through 17, we received the Ten Commandments. Um, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments for this part. And then in verses 18 through 21, there are these flashes of thunder and lightning up on the mountain. Um, the people, So the people are at the bottom, Moses is at the top. There's thunder, lightning, fire. It's scary to them. Inside of that fire, Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. And then after the Ten Commandments, uh, he receives these words of 22 through 26. So maybe someone want to read Exodus 20 verses 22 through 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me. Gods of silver or gods of gold, you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you, and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you shall have, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by my steps to my altar, that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> is this feels like one of those verses you want to end a little differently <laughs> i love that we just said do not go up the steps for otherwise people will see your nakedness i mean that's just a glorious way to conclude the passage <laughs> good job lisa thanks thanks well, maybe we start there. Like, what do we do with when we're when we're any place in the Old Testament, whether it's like Exodus and this when Moses is on Mount Sinai or in Leviticus, what'll happen is what just happened there, where you've got a verse that you really want to like put on a pillow and like put up on a wall, like altar of dirt. That sounds awesome. I love that. But then right next to it, there's these things that seem real weird. So it'll be like like, like in Leviticus 19, it talks about loving the stranger as yourself in the same breath as like not having fabric sewn with two different materials or woven with two different materials. You're like, what, what is, what, it, why, why? <laughs> um, <laughs> so does it feel that way with this one or does it, how does it feel to you to read, to hear all that together and to end with that, not going up the steps? I mean, it feels like, okay, this is really, really cool. And then, oh, this ends with something that I just have no cultural context for. And I don't have a way of understanding at the moment. So I'm sure there's a good explanation for it because welcome to searching the sacred. There's explanations. We talk through things. We don't just leave them hanging. 
at some level, I'm not worried about it, but yeah, I'm not crocheting it or making a poster of it anytime soon. Unless I want to be, you know, ironic and make a verse, a, a t-shirt out of just verse 24 and just go for it. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, partly it makes me wonder like, are people naked normally on the altar? Are they not, what? Like, I'm, like, are we really talking about naked, naked? Um, I think we're talking about seeing up someone's <laughs> undergarment. Imagine somebody wearing a dress, walking up, walking up in front of you. Yeah. Okay. Like, so like more literal reading, but like, I wonder about like, I don't know that it's the same word, but like, there is the whole thing in the garden about being naked. Like, so like, it makes me wonder, like, again, like, is it the literal thing or like, are, are we pulling, are we pulling a story that should make us think something, maybe something else? I once heard, and I don't know how accurate this is, I think it might be accurate, but that shame in our culture, 21st century, you know, Western world, if I run out in public naked, the shame is on me. I'm the one that looks like a fool. But ancient Near East, the shame was on the person who viewed nakedness, which is why like when Noah is exposed, his sons are the ones that are punished, not Noah even though their dad was the one who was drunk and was naked. And so by being car careful about going up the steps is not so that you're exposing yourself to the divine, but that you're not wanting anyone else to be incite shame upon anyone else by them maybe viewing you. Well, this, interestingly enough, you have tied us right to the passage that verse 26 ties to, um, which is the passage of Noah and his sons in Genesis 9, um, because the word, uh, I think, I don't know if your translation said discovered, Lisa, when you read it, um, that your nakedness be discovered. It's actually the word uncovered. The word is galah, which is to uncover or remove, which is the word, by the way, for Exodus. You're uncovered, you're carried off, you're removed. That's galah. But that word actually first appears in the story of Noah when Noah becomes drunk and he uncovers himself and his erva nakedness uh, is exposed to his sons. Um, and so this is that same, those same two words of uncover and, and, um, and expose nakedness uh, is happening with Noah and is happening here um, in Exodus 20, 26. But I wonder if um, this verse is distracting us. Well, I don't know if it's distraction. I think we'll maybe see more in it. We could sort of let it sit there and hold it for a minute and go backwards and say, like, what is the focus of this of these words of God that God is saying? So when we're back up at verse 22, what is uh, the living presence, the Lord saying to Moses? The living presence is reminding Moses that the people have heard the Lord speak from heaven and that they must not make idols to rival the living presence. Say to the children of Israel, you've seen me talk with you from heaven. Don't make Elohim. So it doesn't use the word idols here, it, uh, Baal. It uses the word Elohim, God, like lowercase word for God. Don't make gods of silver or make gods of gold but make an altar of earth is where it goes. Why is God saying that? What's the problem with making gods? Because they're using Elohim could actually then mean don't make a silver or gold who or what. If I read it as idol, then I think of them make actually like 
crafting little things out of gold and silver, like making <laughs> little idols out of it. When I think about it as gods of silver, that makes me think of like elevating silver or gold or in this, but it reminds me of wealth, like making wealth, uh, putting my faith in that maybe. I'm trying mm-hmm. to figure out what word to use. Maybe it's worship, elevate. Like, what do you do with gods? Like for gods, you're sacrificing, you're hoping to please them, all the the feels that come with God. And I think that it also then can include God, God's self in the equation. So here's what I wonder about. I think that sometimes when we think about ancient people creating idols of gold, we assume they're being dumb or assume they're being intentionally anti-living presence, that they're following another God. What if the word gods here includes God's self? Don't make silver things for me. Don't try to represent me in silver and gold. You've heard, you've heard me speak from heaven. Don't try to represent me any other way than that. What would that yeah. say to us? Don't, don't pretend like you can capture my essence in some little thing that your hands can make. Okay, so you heard right away, Jason, like a, a placement there. So I'm just, I'm going to repeat what you said. Don't, don't assume that you can make me out of something that your little hands can make. Sometimes in scripture circles, we'll talk about like what tone of voice you hear things in matters. Mm-hmm. And we can hear things in multiple tones of voice. And that is a valid tone of voice to hear it in. Don't think that you, little human, can craft me, big God, out of silver and gold. Right. Well, you can, can like it can be heard as an offense right? Like this is an offense, but what if it's like, like God offering something to us is like, this is the gift. Like, don't do this. This isn't, it will not be good for you. If you try to do this with silver and gold, like that, that won't help you. Like you're going to, you're going to miss the magnitude of what this really is. And you're going to try to bring it down into a place that you can wrap your mind around when I'm trying to blow your mind. So that could be, yeah. So it could be like, you don't try to shrink it by crafting it. Keep it open. I hear you saying more or a little more than that, Lisa, I think. Well, I'm just trying, because there's a lot of ways that I hear God like saying, don't do things because it feels like it would like tick, like gotta be mad. Like God's gonna get mad when you do these things. Don't do it. But I sometimes wonder like, if, (laughs) like, what if it's not so much that God cares about that, but like. God doesn't care if you did that in terms of like, it's not offensive, whatever, what it's just not good for you. Like well, the things that I dream for you and I want for you, which I don't want you to do is try to wrap up, wrap up my relationship with you in silver or gold. Let it, let it be like, I, like I, like I've actually spoken to you and given you something that follow that, <laughs> follow the thing that's not tangible mm-hmm. because you're going to want to have something tangible. You're going to want to put, you're going to want to put something on it. Yeah. And it's, and and it's more of a tender. It's almost like a, an invitation as opposed to an instruction. Which speaking of we're in Exodus 20, what if we read the 10 commandments as invitations instead of commandments? Cause it actually in Exodus 20 itself does not use the word command. It uses the word teachings. These are the 10 teachings of the living presence. What if these are invitations in the teachings instead of I'm so disappointed in you if you can't uphold this stuff. Right. Because like, cause it's not like the thing, not that God doesn't care. I'm going to keep saying it. And I, every time I say it, I feel like, <laughs> I don't know if I should say it like that, but like, I don't know that it's a personal offense to God to steal. 
but like it does harm to me and it does harm to somebody else it that harms us like I don't think God is like harmed by these things I like I I really think like there's so much of it has such a I don't know like a feeling of like God wants what's best for us like I think about like with my kids <laughs> like mm-hmm. so many that like if you make a bad choice like I'm not hurt by your like a dumb choice that you make but I know that that could have like long-term impact on you I feel like we should go back up to Exodus 20 verse 3 um, to frame the way that God is speaking or to wonder about invitations like this from what Lisa's saying and what what the commands are here or in the, the teachings, the instructions, and how that might even hear, affect how we hear this part at the end. So Exodus 20 verse 3, uh, a lot of people know this. They might fade off by the time we get to make commandment number nine, but the first commandment is, let's hear different translations. Mine is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, mine is you must not have any other God but me. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not let anything become to you other gods on my face. Before me is panim, which is on my, which is face. So have no other gods, Elohim, on my face. Uh, when we're thinking about this, it's a little hard to translate in a podcast because it works much better visually. <laughs> Because if I, let's think about something that any of us, what's something we've all been distracted by lately? Uh, Social media. I will pick social media for myself. That is a distraction for me lately. Chocolate. I don't know. (laughs) Lisa, you got a distraction. We just got to have some really. I think all of my life is a distraction. <laughs> okay. So each of us can picture whatever our thing is, whether it's all of our life, chocolate or social media, we have quite a spectrum there. When anything is a distraction to us, what does that do with our attention? It turns us away from where it's supposed to be. So it, it, I'm putting it for those on the podcast. I am putting my hand in front of my face right now. So put your hand in front of your face and imagine whatever that distraction is on your hand. Because that's what it does. That's whatever the lots of things in life cause us to look at them. If I then try to face someone else, and that that hand is there, what happens? I can't see you. Right, and I can't see you because my hand is on your face. The thing that is distracting me is between you and I, which means it is on your face. I can't see you past it. So what is the problem with having other gods on God's face? We can't see each other or God. Okay, but okay, honestly, though, like what my brain just did was like, wait, does that mean God can't see us if we can't see God? Like in not in like a hiding way, but like there's a... Like as much as I can't see, can God's vision be disrupted? Yes. Thank you. Um, that is a big, deep theological question. <laughs> uh, let's let's for part of it say Jason's not God. So the fact that Jason can see me didn't necessarily mean that God can't see me. Okay, fair. Fair. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't have to take it there right away. But what we can say, well, we hold that wondering, we can say either way, the relationship is disrupted. Because if I can't see God, something is disrupted. Even if God can still me, that is still going to affect our relationship if 
you know, if you're playing hide and seek with a kid, you might be able to still see the kid or peekaboo, right? You can see them. They can't see you. That still affects a relationship if someone's eyes are covered. How is it to have a conversation with someone whose eyes are covered? Um, would you feel like you were being listened to? Would you feel like you were connecting? So there's this way, how does it, how does that feel different or does it feel different as a command to think of, don't put any gods on my face as compared to thou shalt have no other gods before me? Do those two things sound different, feel different? Yeah, it's almost like saying, I don't want anything to distract you from what you should be focused on. What if we take out the word should? Is there a way to say it without should? I invite you not to distract yourself from anything but me. <laughs> that was maybe a little too cumbersome. <laughs> if I'm just sticking with my line of thought, like my th line of thought is kind of offering this space of like, I'm right, like God saying like, I'm right here. I don't want you to have anything else to like in front of me because my face, my, my, my God self is the thing that should be in the front of you. So you like, so you are seen and you can see. Ooh, yes. So you are seen and you can see. And verse two of Exodus 20 told, tells us the kind of God that is in front of us before God gives that invitation. God says, I am the living presence, your God who brought you out of the narrow place, the house of bondage. So the God that is in front of us, helping us see, um, and who sees us as a God that frees people from bondage in narrow places. Keep that in the front of your eyes is how you see and how you are seen. I am a liberator. I'm the liberator, God. Don't put anything between me and you. So that word, interestingly enough, have like here, our translators are like, have no other gods before me, Elohim. That's the same word then when we're in the, our verses we read today, make no other gods of silver or gold. It's not Baal, it's Elohim in both places, but no other gods before me, make no gods of silver or gold. So but, don't, let, don't let gold and silver be the thing that gets between you and I. Yes, what, even if you're doing it with good intent, right? And in this case, potentially what God's talking about is making a gold version of God, right? Like, a, and here we could get into really interesting territory. Like there is a rule for icons and in tradition and worship. So I don't necessarily mean icons. We could have a whole, <laughs> we could have a whole tangent there, but there is some level at which we have to be careful, even with the things we use for religion or try to make ourselves that the things we try to make, even if for the purpose of religion can be things that get between God and us. Ooh, that's like the communion table depending on what rules are put in place on like who can take it, does that create a barrier or an invitation to someone? It's supposed to be this thing that's for all good for, like it's good for anyone who comes to it. But there are times in different denominations and traditions where there's, there's lots of rules. Like how do you get there? Because then when we're in verse 24, what we're, there is something we're instructed to make. And that is then this word, the thing we're instructed to make is an altar of Adama, an altar of earth. Adama is, we hear about it in Genesis 2-7, because God forms Adam, humans, humankind, out of the Adama, earth, dirt. And now the thing we are to make is an altar of Adama, 
not gold, not silver, not gold and silver gods, an altar of Adama. And that altar of earth is a place for sacrifice. And I will bless you there. What is the invitation? Does that feel like an invitation? Does it feel like a command? What? And if it feels like an invitation, what kind of invitation is it? It's like you could either make it, you could be really complicated of then about like, how do you make this altar of earth? Or it could be very simple that it's just earth. Like it's, right? Like it, anyone has access to earth. Okay, that's that's one of the things I see in this passage, just to reveal it. When we're thinking about gold and silver, you have to have resources to have access to gold and silver. You do not have to have resources to have access to earth. And all that you need to have a religious experience with this God that speaks from heaven is an altar of earth. I speak from heaven. You make me an altar of earth. That's it. We got it. What if our, do our churches feel like altars of earth? Sometimes they can feel that way, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes it, it can feel like you have to check a whole bunch of boxes before you can participate in the community, mm-hmm. which would not be as easy as, you know, the earth being the altar. I hate these kind of questions because, like, my instinct is, like, absolutely not. They don't. <laughs> and then I'm like I like I sound like a jerk right like because I'm not I don't want to be against the church big c or little c but I I do think that something's shifted western Christianity like church I don't feel like I'm in touch with the earth when I'm there I feel just like I do I feel like they're holy places yes do I think there are holy experiences there? Yes. Do I think God is there? Yeah. Like all those things are yeses, but I don't feel like an altar. Like I don't, it doesn't feel like an altar of earth to me because it's always like, they're always in buildings. Like they're like, it's always a, a built up some ornate, some huge, some small, but they don't, they don't feel earth-like to me. Mm-hmm. Well, and that tension is right there. Let's take it off the church, right? And say, this is Exodus 20. In Exodus 31, Moses is going to get all these instructions for building a tabernacle from God. Those instructions include making things of gold and sewing things and making things out of wood. Like they make a tabernacle, but yet this is also here. So how do, what is the difference? What do we make? What do we not make? When does it become a distraction that's between us and God? And when does it become a helpful container to worship inside of? And what, what's the risk? And what is God inviting us to? Jason, you've been quiet. I think there's a level of dialectical thinking, like a little both and thinking in this that we need to have, which I think is why we're actually enjoying this passage or why we even started talking about it is that, yes, there are these expectations about not harming our neighbor and not killing people and, you know, all the kind of relational guidances, right, of the Ten Commandments. But then there's also this very inclusive, and the earth is an altar unto the Lord. So, Let's just be in relationship with the living presence because it's always available, especially as you brought up, like we're made of that, like the same atoms that make the earth are the same particles that make me. 
like the human being is the temple of the Lord, right? I mean, not to jump all the way to Paul, but like if we're going to fast forward all of this worship analogies from tent of meeting to altar of the earth to the tabernacle to the temple to Jesus being the temple to now the body of Christ being the temple of the Holy Spirit, like at some level, it's kind of all saying the same thing. Like if it's material atoms coming together there's space for holiness and connection to be found there and it doesn't have to be any more ornate than that and some of that language in the new testament comes from the chapter right before this in exodus 19 is when god says you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests a holy nation a treasure above all people. All of that language about how the humans themselves are a spiritual community is in the chapter right before this, still at Mount Sinai. So at the same time as the people are being given instructions for how to live and instructions for how to build the tabernacle, they're also being told, and you are holy as people. And you, a holy people, only need an altar of earth, and I speak from heaven. Right there's a there's a tension being held in this back and forth of how do we have framework, but not let that framework come between us and God, and how do we not lose too much in either direction? Well, and I think it kind of connects to so when I think about the idea of an altar of the earth, tabernacle leading to a temple, it also reminds me a little bit of like Exodus 16 where they are getting manna you know, then they have to collect for two days because, you know, the seventh day is going to remain holy. Well, not every day is meant to remain holy. They have to work for six days. And so there's a part of me that wonders if like the tabernacle, the temple, there's a level of, hey, there's going to be unique times where you're going to need a space to connect and to reflect and to understand. And then the rest of the time, if you're honest with yourself, all you really need is the earth. And mm -hmm. so you 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 already have enough, but you know, we're also going to have this unique thing for you. It's going to help instruct you and teach you and guide you. Along those lines, there's also like with the altar of earth, the focus then is less on the altar. You're going to make an altar of earth. That's where you're going to do your sacrificing. I do care about what you're doing, but like you can do this. You can make this thing anywhere. This isn't about it's not specificity yet. Although it is interesting, what I was curious about in the passage is that like in every place where I record my name, I will come to you. Which then I was like, well, how do you know where God records his name? Like, is that a, is that a new rule or is that like God's name is everywhere? Well, let's think about that idea. So it's the word there is zakar, which is remember or recall or record. Um, so zakar is a pretty big word as we think about remembering and creating remembrances, um, things that are called to mind. God is saying there, the place where I record my name, I shall come to you and bless you. So Lisa's question is, where does God record God's name? It might also be helpful to throw in the word place. So the word there for place is makom. Uh, Macomb is not just geographical location, as we as we can probably imagine with a verse, <laughs> verse like this. Macomb is a standing place, a region, a spot. But it's also then it's a word that's used in places like um, Genesis 28. In Genesis 28, Jacob is journeying to his uncle Laban on the 
run from his brother Isaac, and he lighted upon a certain Macomb, and he spent the night there and laid his head on a rock. And at that Macomb, he had this dream <laughs> of the angels ascending and descending. And then he awoke out of his sleep and said, certainly the living presence is in this Macomb, and I knew it not. So Macomb is a place that's a place. Let me ask this then. So we're not saying it's an actual like physical location per se, because we're not wondering like, oh, is God like down the street from me? Is God's presence like over out there on the water? If I get in a boat and get to it, it's not like in the church. But I wonder, like Jacob, this was a holy place. I was not aware of it. So is the place more a framework of how you are understanding God's presence? Like, is it almost like an internal, like a spiritual journey that you're on and you recognize that like, oh, this too is holy? Yeah. Well, I think that I wonder if part of what's being asked in these verses in general is, is God far away or is God near? Can any place be a Macomb? Are there special Macomb? So Lisa's question or how she asked it, where does God, Zakar, God's name, where does that name get recalled or remembered? How do we know if we're there? Maybe part of the question is, have you had that experience of something that felt like a place that wasn't just a place? And where was it? When was it? Maybe we tell a couple of stories of places like that. I have a very distinct I don't even know how to describe it um, other than by telling the story. So the first time my wife and I, who we had family living in Memphis, Tennessee, and we went down to visit and we were driving and we were, you know, checking out Beale Street and, and we were going for a walk. And then we turned a corner and right in front of us was the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated. And that motel has now been turned into a civil rights museum, very beautiful museum, but I remember the first time turning the corner and standing there and then kind of, I, it was like, I took a couple steps forward and then like the air changed and it was, I mean, there's still like a level of preservation of that building and of the sign. And, and like, there's even some cars out front that look like they're from that time period, of course. And, and so it wasn't like I was stepping back in time, but it was like, I was stepping onto like holy ground of there's not only like something significant happened here, but like, I don't know, like the trajectory of humanity changed. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It was just, you know, and, and like, we can go into all the, you know, we, we could spend all day talking about the impact of that assassination and the work of Dr. King and how that is personal to some of us, so all of us and, you know, but, and also just trajectory, you know, changing and, but yeah, that, that space just felt more than a space in a way. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, I mean, that's a great, I love the way you described that the air changed, right? Because probably it didn't change for everybody on that day who walked down that street, but it changed for you. So that feels like it raises also, is it, what makes it a Macomb? Is it about the place? Is it about the person? Is it about the person and place together? And is it about the person, the place, and the time together? Is there another time that you could have visited there that it wouldn't feel like a Macomb? But there's something about this moment you sunk into where the air changed. 
and it felt significant and you noticed that it felt significant and you allowed it to be a moment. And what is that when that happens to us, when we have those moments of sometimes, and we use the word in English sometimes, I feel like people call these thin places Mm -hmm. when they have that feeling of like heaven and earth being close together. What is it to experience that? What is it to mark it? What is it to have an altar of earth there and have a sacrifice that marks that location inside of us and outside of us? My experience is a much more like, um, I don't know, this feels like, it almost feels cliche because it happened in Israel, right? (laughs) But it's the most clear moment of it I can think of, which is that we were there with a tour group and we were not going to stop at the Jordan River. But I knew that I knew that I knew we needed to stop at the Jordan River. Um, And I would have grabbed the steering wheel of that bus if the bus driver hadn't gone to the Jordan River. Because I something in me knew we needed to go there that day. Um, And I would say that day, that location felt like an altar of earth where we sacrificed and where we had a connection with God and where God made God's name known. And the whole trip was, I mean, the trip, I mean, it's trip to Israel. There are moments (laughs) in different points along the way that feel special, but there was something there that was there for all of us. That was a Macomb. And for some people, it wasn't a Macomb. Like right after we had this very deep spiritual experience there, our tour group showed up and started taking selfies. I don't think it was a Macomb for them. Same place, but they were having a different experience of that place. Lisa, what have you been thinking about? Well, I was kind of playing over the different places in my life. And then I was like, like, <laughs> like I was like, I don't know about that dirt altar. But then I started to think about the fact that it's both burnt offering and peace offering. And so then I was like, oh, that kind of makes me think about prison. What's interesting about like being in the prison and doing like my um, CPE for chaplaincy with four people who are incarcerated is like, it feels like it is a, that feels like a thin place when we're all together, but it's also in the midst, like how we all got to that place is very different. And where that's housed, like if you, like when we were leaving this week, there was an incident. So like as regular people walking through the prison, like you hit the back, you put your back to the wall and you let everybody do their thing. And, but that was the first time, like, that you're reminded of like, oh, that is a very thin, thin place because in one second, the whole thing changes and disrupts and it's, and it's not. And so it kind of, the fragility of it, but also that it's all that starts to swirl for me a little bit of like, it's not like, it's not one place for your peace offerings and one place for your burnt off. Like we're not separating out the things we're going to do it all in the same place and come together. And the laws around peace offerings and burnt offerings are different to that point. Peace offering, burnt offerings are things where like I am um, in a burnt offering. It's maybe a festival time period. It's Yom Kippur. It's Passover. It's something where I am invited slash commanded. We can decide what we want to use from this conversation we're having to come to the, to the tabernacle or temple and to bring my sacrifice for the altar. The priest burns that sacrifice as a part of my relationship with God. And, and that food then from that burnt offering sometimes gets burned all the way up or sometimes becomes food for the priests. But it's a very particularly religious act. A peace offering happens 
more based on a communal something. Sometimes it happens because I am out of relationship with someone else and I invite them to come do a peace offering with me to come back into right relationship. Or it might happen sometimes like, oh my gosh, I had a much more abundant crop than I thought I would out of praise and thanks to God, I'm going to bring a peace offering. So I choose when to bring a peace offering. And when I bring a peace offering, the entire community eats of my peace offering. Um, it is not for just me, or it is not for the priest. It is not. It is not a vertical me and God thing. It is a me and God and everyone mm-hmm. moment where we all partake of something together for a purpose of whether it's um, reconciliation purpose or whether it is a, a gratitude purpose. It is this deeply communal. We all eat this meal that was brought. And so this is a place for both things. This is a place for writing my relationship with God and writing my relationship with neighbor where God shows up, um, where God's name is recorded and where we are blessed on this altar of dirt. I I feel like there's this call to spiritual maturity almost sounds cheap to put it that way, but like, there's almost like a, like I want you to show up in the world and be to see it differently, to participate in it differently. I, I, like there's a there's this invitation to be a part of something more dynamic than just you know small or controlled or you can have ownership of it. But it's like no, this thing is so more dy- so much more dynamic than you. And if you are able to just slow down and see it, like not only will the divine show up, but like it will impact all of your relationships as well. It's like an invitation into, yeah, spiritual maturity in a way. Why, why is it that it takes more maturity to do this than to like build something out of stone and gold? Am I interpreting what you said correctly to ask that as a question back? 100%. Because spiritual maturity, at least for me, is recognizing that I have to stop trying to achieve and complete and accomplish. And I need to start participating in the divine flow of love and abundance, as opposed to scarcity and um, fear and building, creating, making lists of things. That is all about control and and typically it's control because I'm scared. And so I think that's that's why it feels more mature to me. Well, I'm thinking that might tie into verse 26, which we haven't returned to yet about this nakedness. Don't go up steps to my altar. That's really where that verse begins. So let's just pause. Why? What is happening if we are going up steps to the altar? It's like elevated or set apart from the rest of everyone else. Okay, right. There's an, uh, so this is using the word ascent twice, basically, Allah. So going up is Allah and then steps is Ma'Allah. So don't ascend the ascending places to my altar. Because, so Jason, you just brought up, that means if, if God's altar is way up on these steps, it's separated from us. What, why do humans want to do that? Like, why does that have to be said to not do that? <laughs> why would we make steps up to an altar high and far away? Well, my own personal honest reflection is that to believe or to try to operate in the world as if like God is trying to 
operate through me or in me or participate or inviting me to participate with God, as opposed to being the separate entity that is out there that I just have to appease and just have to like keep in the good graces so that my life goes okay. The idea that God is trying, is inviting me to participate in this can probably be really scary. It could also be maybe seen as a lack of humility, even though I think it takes a great amount of humility. And it's also a lot harder to control that because now it's just something that's happening as opposed to something I can go and like do my due diligence and then step away from. Right. Okay. So the way you just said it, here's what I think I heard you say. I'm a calm. We have to be ready to like turn a corner and realize the air is different in this place. If God's all, and then make an altar in response to that experience that we have had, that we have been participating in and aware of. If we build an altar up on a hill, then we ascend the steps when we want to communicate with God who's in a place, who is in designated place, and then we come back to our lives, which means that we're aware of God up here and we're not aware of God day to day. So the sense of like, what is it to, what is it to not have that control of saying God's up here? What I, what I was thinking about, I was trying to look up verses for this, is that the, in the once they get to the promised land, their significant struggle is about sacrificing on high places. Um, and that becomes the language used for idol worship in the promised land is they're going up and they're sacrificing on high places because the standard practice of the day was to sacrifice to gods at high places. The higher you up are, you are on the mountain, the higher you up, up you are on a hill, the closer you are to God who is up in the heavens. And so the higher you get, the closer you are to God. That's where you do your sacrifices. And here God is saying, altar of earth in this Macomb where you are, that's where you do your sacrifices. Hmm. Is there any other difference besides that sort of, I don't know, it, you said, a, hmm, does that strike you any differently or anything more open up? I just, I just appreciate it. it. It's, you know, I think we, we always try to ascend to God. And I feel like the overall kind of this overarching almost meta narrative is like God saying, no, I'm already here. I'm already here. I'm already here. I'm already here. Stop. Like just participate in it. The earth is an altar. Like let's like join me, you know, like we can do this. You don't need to keep putting me somewhere. I'm not, or you don't need to keep trying to keep me away from you. You know, you don't need to recreate me you know, it, it's, it's happening. It's not, gonna happen you know it hasn't it, it's it's always present which that once we do get further along in the story and they build the tabernacle the tabernacle yes there is gold built into that so that starts to create this non, non-binary thinking of what's being talked about not being talked about here they build something but that something that they build is placed in the center of their community it's not up a hill it's not it's, it's in the center of who they are and god is right in the middle of their community appearing as a cloud, staying there centered in them, not, not away, not far away, not up on a mountain, right in the, right in the center, which goes well into what Jesus talks about when we get into the new Testament of, and the Holy spirit coming and God being amongst us. Like, it feels like our propensity to try to like build something like we're just really, and like, I don't think God cares if we're naked. I just don't like in so many ways. I'm like, I don't think it's about that. I think it's about the thing that happens when you're trying to like, like the vulnerability, the shame, like how all the things that get like trapped in that, like if you bring all of that, if you bring like this need to like build things, like 
if you can't find an altar in, or like, if you feel like you have to go to church to, or a building, like that's the only place you can do it. Or you've been told that's the only place you can do it, that then it feels like we're missing out on some of this. Like, here's the basis. Like, you're going to want to do stuff. You're going to, you're going to want to take, you're going to want to build. You're going to want to, like, your natural inclination is to do all these things. You don't have to. None of that's. And in fact, it'll like, it makes it, it makes it harder. It, it, it will get in the way. Let's flip to Genesis nine. Cause that really is Jason brought us there earlier and you're bringing us back to there with the tower of Babel afterwards of, because the word for nakedness here is not the word for nakedness in the garden. The word for nakedness here is the word for nakedness that's in Genesis 9. So in the garden, when the humans are naked and not ashamed, the word is arom. So arom is an idea of nude. <laughs> it means naked. It means nude. Um, it means it means what it means. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe nakedness. <laughs> what I think we're we going to title we're this podcast like suit. words for nakedness, <laughs> right? Um, in Genesis nine, and here we're in verses like, uh, 20, 21, 22, 23, Noah plants a vineyard, drinks the wine, becomes drunk and is gala uncovered within his tent. What is true of the state of Noah at that moment? He is drunk and uncovered in his tent. What words could we use for being drunk and uncovered in your tent? Vulnerable. Vulnerable? I mean, if you're married to him, you'd think he's dumb. I like I like, like that's not a wise, necessarily a wise choice. I don't know. Or maybe like it's celebratory. Like yeah. you okay. made a vineyard, it was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the word here for naked, did, Jason, did you have another thought or you're just trying to figure out anything? I have no idea. I mean, I've never been <laughs> drunk and naked in my, ho- my home, so I have no idea. I got no frame of reference for this one other than like, yeah, Noah's like, yeah, vulnerably not making smart choices. Okay. Uh, he's, a, he's a, probably a, a, a an odd drunk. I guess. Okay. So here we have the word Irva and Irva is a nakedness that is also has some shame or indecency to it. And the particular kind of vulnerability that comes with the shame or indecency of like, you've been, there's a disgrace, there's a blemish, there's something being seen that, that would embarrass you that it was seen. Uh, The word at the root of it is Ara, which is to be laid bare or to be exposed. So there's something in Noah being exposed. There's a vulnerability. There's potential of being shamed or defiled, like as he's drunk and gala uncovered in his tent. The brothers come in. His sons come in. Ham comes in. What does Ham do? He went outside and told his brothers. Ham sees the Irva nakedness of his father and he goes and tells his two brothers about that shame that defilement that uh uncovering that has happened then in verse 23 what does shem and japheth do they held up a robe over their shoulders and they backed into the tent as they did this they looked the other way so they would not see noah naked 
And they come in and they kasa, cover or conceal his nakedness. So what is this a conversation about? The weird story at the end of Noah's Ark. This one does not get on the flannel boards in Sunday school. But after Noah gets off the ark, he gets drunk and naked. <laughs> no, the, we didn't teach that one. Which um, also let's put a mark in Noah's Ark is not a children's story anyway, because the whole thing is not very kid friendly. But no. this part in particular tends to get left off. What's this about? Sorry, Lisa, you had a thought. No, I like, I was just, I mean, it really begs the question of like, what do you do if you do see somebody's, like, what do you do when you know somebody's naked? Like, this is your father. Like, this is somebody supposedly that you love and care for. And so what then, like, what do you do when it's, when it's that person? And so it seems like one decides to tell everybody else about it. Like, I don't, like, can one person cover him and walk in backward or like, I don't, I don't know the rules, but it feels like it's the question of like, how are you going to take care of someone who has a blemish or who is vulnerable? What mm-hmm. will you do? How will you handle that? Okay. And in Exodus 20, if you ascend stairs to the altar, you are uncovering your own shame and blemish. You are making yourself uncovered and naked in that defilement as you walk up those stairs. Why? What's being uncovered? What's being seen if, as I walk up those stairs? Your nakedness? <laughs> yes. What, which is what? What's that? When we go back to the kind of naked that Noah is here, which is different than the naked that's of like the beautiful naked of the garden. This is a, this is a shame. This is a defilement. This is a blemish. This is an embarrassment. What is the embarrassment or shame or defilement that is uncovered as I walk up steps to a, an altar? Why shouldn't there be steps? Because you were already there. Okay, so if what's being uncovered? If I was already there and I don't have to walk up steps, what's being uncovered? Your own foolishness. Your own, your own thinking that you could somehow achieve this, create this, build this, manipulate this. It's already happening and it's already around you and you just need to remove the veil that separates you from it. Well, and maybe it ties into what Lisa was doing with the Tower of Babel. Like what's uncovered at the Tower of Babel is that people are trying to make it, make a name for themselves through what they're building. And maybe there's something in that that's getting uncovered if you ascend those stairs of like, there's something you're trying to do that you don't have to try to do. Like just God's already here. Just open your eyes to the way that God is already mm-hmm. here in this Macomb, make an altar of dirt and sacrifice there. Don't try to build something. Building something is exposing something about you and not exposing something about God. Mm-hmm. Like just be where you are, open your eyes, see. I really wish that podcasters could see Lisa's face when she thinks. <laughs> like I was listening. She always like has this like deep look up. It's true. There's a, there's a beautiful tree outside. Uh-huh. Oh, and so sure. I look at the tree. I look at the tree. Like I really like how you said that stuff of like it exposes more about you than it does about God. And I think we sometimes forget that that's true in all types of ways within the church, right? Even like how we do our, how we worship, how we do a service, how we engage. And it also like how we do stuff in our homes, right? Like so much of it reflects more about who we are than who God is. Well, and this gets into, I mean, this, maybe an Easter egg or something for a future conversation, but the word for exposed here, gala, is the word for exile because exile exposes what was already true of us. It's not, it's not 
taking us from God's presence, actually. God, it turns out God's in both places. The exile is about exposing who you already were that is now being seen in what you're losing and how you're handling that. This ex- this idea of exposure is uncovering, um, which goes to, the, I mean, that there we would get into New Testament ideas or ideas of apocalypse is the same sort of idea. Apocalypse is, now I forget what it is. Jason, what's apocalypse? <laughs> it's uh, uh, unveiling. Un- Revealing. Revealing. <laughs> I assumed you would know, Jason. You know Sorry. Greek better than the two of us. <laughs> I was going to say, I think we should have wrapped this up with the, the exile thing. <laughs> I think we were about there. to put a pin in it. And then all of a sudden you took us to apocalypse and I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> well, no, but meaning that what I was tying together was this idea of what, what gets uncovered, what gets seen by how we do things, what what gets revealed about who we are by the process we undertake and what we think it takes to get to God. Are we making things of gold? Are we building hewn stones of steps? Do, do we think God is far away or near? Are our eyes open to those macombs when we cross a corner and the eye be- air becomes thin and hard to breathe because something has changed? And can we operate with that awareness and build an altar of dirt there and call on God's name? This podcast is a partnership between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. 40 Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a 40 Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's 40orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.com. Thanks again for joining us on Searching the Safety.